0: Welcome to the podcast of ideas. The recording you're about to hear was from the Economy Forum on Wednesday, the 6th of May, entitled COVID-19 in the Economy, part two, China. In this Economy Forum, Austin Williams and James Woodhausen introduced the second in their series of special discussions on the way that coronavirus is affecting the economy internationally. In the chair is Rob Lyons.
1: So yes, yeah, so welcome to the Economy Forum. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm the convener of the forum and I'll be chairing tonight's discussion. Um, this is the second in our series of discussions that's looking at specific parts of the world, or parts of the world economy, and uh, trying to understand how COVID-19 is, uh, is affecting them. Uh, this week we're looking at China. Uh, The country where the outbreak is believed to have uh, begun and uh, which had a very harsh lockdown if you remember back in January, February, at least in some parts of the country. From the outside, having been through that experience, it looks like China's very much got back to normal. And normal means, among other things, being the workshop of the world. With developed countries hugely reliant on China for everything from smartphones to PPE. So what has been the effect on China internally, both economically and politically? What, what now for the standing of the Communist Party? Has that been uh, in, improved? Are people more aligned to the Communist Party, or are, 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 will there be signs of greater discontent? What effect has the, the relative downturn had? Equally, when it comes to China, international aspects are hugely important. I mean, the crisis certainly demonstrated how dependent the West is on China. Will we see reshoring of jobs in? Order to lessen that dependency, what does it all mean for China's Belt and Road Initiative and other ways in which it's expanding its spheres of influence? And uh, all this on much more, no doubt, in the next hour and a half. So, um, before I introduce our speakers, I just wanted to have a little word from our sponsors. The Academy of Ideas is continuing to work throughout uh, the crisis. No staff have been furloughed, and in fact, we're working harder than ever, like doing meetings like this one um, practically every night. So all our online events during this crisis will be free and available to anyone with the means to log on. We'd be really grateful if you could consider giving us your financial support. If you'd like to make a donation, small or large, please go to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Right uh, on to our speakers. First the speaker is going to be Austin Williams. Uh, Austin is the Director of the Future Cities Project. He's a senior lecturer at the Department of Architecture at Kingston University. He's an honorary research fellow at XJTLU, Suzhou, China, and he's the author of China's Urban Revolution, Understanding Chinese Eco-Cities. And then after we've heard from Austin, uh, we'll have James Woodhausen, He's visiting professor at London South Bank University, co-author of Energize, a future for energy innovation, and co-author of uh, Why is Construction So Backward? So they're going to be taking different aspects of the the subject um, each and uh, so quite um, different uh, takes on it. They'll both speak for about 15 minutes each and then we'll uh, turn to you for questions and points of order and uh, your own comments. So,
2: Austin, the, the floor is yours. Okay, so you don't have to look at me. Uh, I've put a PowerPoint together, just some images, uh, just to half illustrate the story so this is just a, um, an overview. I wanted to look at the history of China, uh, that for the last 30 years, many commentators have all pointed to the contradictory nature of China's social and political structure. They say that it, you know, it could possibly survive. It can't resolve the irresolvability of its uh, contradictions. But uh, predictions of his human demise have been greatly exaggerated because of uh, an ingrained uh, pragmatism. You know, it doesn't matter if the cat's black or white, as long as he catches mice, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's also a, a protectionism in as much as the purpose of social and economic activities. So to ensure stability, you require the party. The party requires stability. But the party is paramount in this conversation. So bear those things in mind. Uh, And uh, in many ways, the uh, Gini coefficient is one of those things which has long been looked to by party officials as a way of keeping a nervous eye on the current situation and the stability. This only goes as far as 2016. You can quite imagine that this actually drops off uh, the chart uh, in the following year and a half. Um, So when you're looking at the Gini coefficient of inequality, you can imagine that uh, the double digit uh, growth that has been going on Uh, the noise um, and uh, 6.5% growth over the last six or seven years has obviously given a certain amount of contentment to the establishment, uh, but you now tend to find that there's been 6.8% negative growth in the first quarter of this year in China, and they're predicted to grow 1.2% over the course of the year. So you can imagine that uh, there's some uh, nervous Politburo members around. And if you add to that, that China has an approach to covid coronavirus uh, and which is kind of zero tolerance uh, preparing to shut down and isolate uh, at a stroke uh, it's made markets very volatile very um, uncomfortable indeed so I want to take a look at those things I mentioned about history about uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and about responses to COVID-19 so when Western I'm I'm gonna romp through this so you have to bear with me when Western politicians talked about reparations for COVID 19, just a couple of weeks ago, demanding that uh, China pay the West for the healthcare, uh, you know, 330 billion pound rescue package that the uh, UK brought in. I think they should tread very carefully because you just go back, uh, you know, you're not going to go back very far to the Opium Wars, 100 years of, of humiliation under China, where the British and the East India Company uh, created 14 million opium addicts, 3% of the population. Uh, You know, it it kind of uh, seized Hong Kong, you know, the story. So it's kind of, it's on thin ice when it starts talking about reparations for uh, uh, bad deals done, I think. But I wanted just to mention two things which have cropped up in the media recently uh, about China. And it's like this idea of autarky, which I think we talked about. Actually, what's been talked about in China from from Empire times all the way through to Mao and uh, Deng Xiaoping and Xi Jinping have also talked about it. It's the mantra of self-reliance. Uh, rather than the issue of self-sufficiency. And I think it's quite an important distinction. The uh, report from the Paulson Institute in Chicago uh, points out that it's not self-sufficiency or autarky, which we can talk about, but it explains that it's mainly an idea that as a weaker player in the, in the um, geopolitical conversation, China wants to keep the initiative uh, in their own hands. It wants to maintain the control of its own destiny rather than it being an autarkic kind of self-sufficient grow your own crops type mentality. So we can talk about that uh, um, certainly uh, later. If we move on in time uh, to the 1970s, after Mao dies in 76, 78, Deng Xiaoping opens up China to the Western economy by doing a couple of uh, small scale as well as large scale investments. The uh, town and village enterprises, which was a a way of bringing in foreign ventures and foreign uh, joint ventures into China, um, they moved from being 22%, this is small-scale local agricultural production, uh, went from being 22% in 1978 all the way up to 57% 15 years later. And at the same time, coincidentally, the state sector, state-owned enterprises, went from 78% down to 42%. So the private sector, within 15 years, overtook the state sector, which, which almost shrunk by half. So there's you know, some, some profound, as I'm sure we're all aware, profound changes the um, social progress that took place between 78 and 92, an example, um, was kind of quite profound. But it still remained, and still in some respects still does remain, a battle between reformers and the old god. And to such an extent that, you know, Tiananmen Square we all know about. But in 1992, Deng Xiaoping took it upon himself to come out of retirement to do this southern tour, as it's called down in Shenzhen. To enforce by by force of character and, and force of um, historic will and the the the, you know, the the influence that Deng Xiaoping carried at that time was to emphasise the need for radical market reforms within China and you saw that from 1990 uh, from almost a standing start by 2006 you had 750 billion dollars worth of foreign direct investment in China which was then subsequently doubled again. about 140 in the last five years, $140 billion. In the first quarter of this year, obviously, that's dropped by 9 to 10%. But even so, the tech sector is still being invested, 15% increase in tech sector investment by foreign firms uh, in the last uh, three months even. Uh, So, SOEs, state-owned enterprises themselves, which we we just talked about, it being in decline, uh, started to rise again after the financial crash of 2008, as a backstop, uh, the state stepping in to protect. In the same way, state-owned enterprises again started to rise in 2015 when Xi Jinping started to express slightly less liberal tendencies than maybe many people thought he was going to from 2011 onwards. So state-owned enterprises now account for about 29% of GDP and a large number of, of the employed. And even though everybody knows, I mean, not just externally, but internally, know that the state sector is inefficient, kind of a lumbering uh, entity, it's kind of needed for three reasons, I would argue. And uh, one of them is uh, obvious in as much as such a vast country and the, the amount of uh, money and capital required to invest to uh, build the assets, to maintain the infrastructure and all the rest of the enabling work. Uh, it requires state um, intervention. Uh, this, the Communist Party of China uses uh, state-owned enterprises to keep control of what we, they call the commanding heights of the economy. Uh, and then the, the, the third point is that they are used to maintain social stability. They have a policy role rather than an economic role. They're a backstop. In economic depression terms, and one report recently said that uh, state-owned enterprises are not necessarily designed to maximise profits, but to fulfil social responsibilities, like reducing unemployment. And uh, now we have 10% urban unemployment in the last three months. 60% of, of graduates uh, who would have gone to small to medium-sized enterprises are now going back into the state sector as that kind of iron rice bowl, that protection. Uh, um, against uh, the, the decline in the economy. Uh, some some officials, and it's a growing number uh, within the party and on the sidelines of the party, have been talking about the experiment should now be over. The idea that private sector has advanced the economy, thank you very much, uh, but now we can stop those, literally stop those, and the state-owned enterprise can now it's learned the lessons and that can now take over. The state should take over. So you can still see this kind of reformer old guard battle taking place. Um, and again, just so we don't get too, too carried away, uh, you can see here, or you can see in a number of instances, that um, the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party of China, which happens in 2021, the Deng Xiaoping's uh, ambitions were for China to become a reasonably prosperous society. That was his ambitions uh, over the next of 50 years. The 100th anniversary of the People's Republic in 2049 Uh, Has the ambition of building a strong, democratic, culturally advanced, harmonious, modern socialist country. Uh, So those are the things we have to look forward to um, and to see whether they can play out with this, with the tensions between capitalism and communism. Uh, The housing supply boom, uh, I guess. Oh, there we are. The housing supply boom uh, is uh, cracking on as usual, but 22% of all housing is empty. That's 50 million houses. I don't know if you remember 1997 when John Prescott said he wanted to build 4.4 million new houses. China built 4.5 million new houses in six months. Uh, but it's kind of it's impressive, but it's uncontrolled. It's target driven. It's often unsuitable and unsustainable. Um, and the land deals, which are required to bring these into place, is a is a well known scam. And very many people are kind of worried about the bubble bursting. And it's a carefully managed. Economy. The state is certainly in control of what's going on and there's managed decline in certain areas. Uh, But the individual savings that Chinese people have have amassed over the years in in the um, advance of the economy means that now 40% of their savings, annual savings, are uh, sorry, their annual earnings are in savings compared to about 34% in the UK. Uh, And for those people, housing is a safe bet in a country where there aren't that many safe bets. Investing in housing is deemed to be um, uh, productive. Bear in mind also that in 1976, all housing was collectivized. Uh, Nobody owned anything. And now, today, 90% is home ownership. That's a remarkable, remarkable statistic. The UK, it's about 67%. And because the central government imposes revenue raising um, uh, obligations on um, provincial and local authorities, but they're not allowed to to, 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 uh, accept any loans, uh, they create these kind of um, private financial vehicles, which are in effect another arm of the local government, which then uh, get loan, they buy, uh, they buy rural land, they then re-designate, uh, you've made a package. Uh, and that's the, way, that's the way it works. You, they've raised about 40% of local government revenue on that basis, uh, just by taking all the surrounding land and redesignating. And by the way, local officials very often get promoted on the amount of land that they've redesignated. It's one of their criteria. Um, so it's a nice circular argument until January 2020, when there was a 30% price drop in housing. Again, there are, these are tensions waiting to happen. Whether they are irresolvable is uh, something for us to uh, discuss. In terms of COVID-19 and its response, uh, there's a total lockdown of Wuhan. I'm sure that uh, we all know. Look, I'm not clicking. Look. I'm missing out on some of the great images. Uh, the total lockdown in Wuhan and Hubei province, uh, 65 million people living in Hubei province, the size of the UK. Trains are running, but the monitoring activities are under uh, social credit surveillance systems have been extended. The facial recognition the penalties. Uh, for use. you have, to have a green light before you get on a bus or a train. And 14-day quarantine is now standard. Even if uh, you know you've been on an aeroplane and you're clean, once you get off, you do your 14 days quarantine. But if somebody else on the aeroplane then is discovered, that you have to go back to quarantine. In the same way, anybody in your office gets uh, coronavirus, you, everybody gets quarantine in your office. Yes, the entire office shuts down. And the Economist is talking about this really disturbing start-stop economy, which kind of is, is untenable in many respects. Uh, but again, they seem to be managing it because two things have arisen from coronavirus, which is the $600 billion stimulus package, which Xi Jinping has brought out, the same amount of money that he, he in, uh, brought into the economy in the crash. Uh, and he's invested that in infrastructure, which is actually quite interesting. So apart from the fact that they've now got a new design for Wuhan, an urban development plan for Wuhan, um, they're investing in the tech sector, in robotics, Uh, There's um, where have we got there? Uh, Yes, they're actually testing uh, cryptocurrencies now in uh, Suzhou. They're bringing in uh, digital currencies, blockchain, which Xi Jinping has said is an important breakthrough to accelerate the country's innovation, is now started, and they're using blockchain technology within the healthcare system this week. Uh, So they're investing in construction, in R&D, and they're pumping money into banks and local governments to trickle down and try to infuse something. In some ways, again, it's a crass comparison, but the US and the UK are kind of giving money to households and individuals to support networks. There's a slightly different kind of um, dynamic at play, I, I would argue. And the second thing to come out of COVID is, um, is that China had shaken off the environmental prior status and become a world leader in environmental issues in many respects. But now, uh, in order to get out of the hole that it's in, in the economy, it's actually promoting coal which operates at a 40% loss, but as we know, state-owned sectors aren't there to make a profit. They're just there to be zombie industries and soak up unemployment. Uh, and even though coal consumption slumped by 26% in February, 72% of all coal plants outside China are funded by China. So it's interesting to work out whether China is going to face an eco-backlash from the Western states, uh, as well as just maybe a, you know a, um, a trade war. Uh, and then finally, I'll be very, very quick, on the Belt and Road. I mean, I can't deal with the Belt and Road, and I think James is going to deal with it. Uh, it's that kind of thing which connects China to the rest of the world, uh, which is this. Uh, in Yiwu, which is in Zhejiang province, um, there's the small commodities capital of the world. It basically makes all the trinkets, all the tats that you buy in Poundland. Um, uh, and it's 6,000-mile journey trains from Madrid to, uh, and London to, to Yiwu. Um, it's a unique place in China because it's uh, first of all, you have to show your passport to get into the town. Um, and it's a state sponsored enterprise zone of free market capitalism. It's uh, unlike anything you'd see anywhere in the world, I would argue. Um, and it's based on, it's, a, it's an exemplar of what was the 1984 uh, doctrine of uh, one village, one product. So Yiwu started off as the town that made uh, straws, plastic straws. Um, obviously, the environmentalists got hold of that three years ago and they had to ditch that. They made paper straws and now they're making starch straws. Uh, but in the, the surrounding area, Da Tong village is known as Sock City, uh, 10 billion Socks every year are made. And then EU has just found the market of being the central kind of agency distribution point. Uh, so you have, <coughs> you have all of this going on, basically, there are 100,000 suppliers. Uh, all kind of networking and, and uh, haggling with purchasers who come from all over the world. Um, so first, Trump's trade war did a, did a dirty deal on this town, and then COVID-19 saw a 17% bump, uh, in sales. And now you have this double double trouble and demand shock where actually all the buyers are drying up around the world. So EU as a connection to the world. is finding out that actually the rest of the world has a lot of money to connect with it. In many ways. So this kind of unique multicultural city where has banned foreigners, the lifeblood of the city, trade routes to Africa are banned as well to Europe. And one trip from peasantry and one crash away from returning. Uh, so it's all very many many people are finding this a very tenuous relationship with what's gone before and preparing themselves for the worst. So all in all, China's ruling party has got, you know, even most pragmatically, pragmatic, it's got a very difficult problem on its hands, I would argue. So I haven't mentioned the leaders, I haven't mentioned US-China trade relations, but there you go. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. I have a
3: lot in there. Thank you very much for all of that. So, James, over to you. Welcome to China, everybody. Um, mm. This is Tiananmen Square a long time ago. I landed there, not in the square, and they're very good at Um, screens in China and blue and stuff like that. They're also very good at the loudspeakers telling you what to think. But despite all the repression and the 80 to 90 million members of a 1.3 billion population who are members of the Communist Party, the CCP, it still has, as Austin already hinted, uh, some important potential, not least uh, technologically. They can turn a building into a cinema Uh, like this, and we need to remember that and try to stand back from the impressions of them either being totally powerful or being totally a a basket case. Uh, Obviously the truth is somewhere in between. Um, I think when we're looking at uh, the conflict between America and China, it's a very serious, one. it was serious before Covid, and towards the end of the discussion, where well, I know everybody would like to get on to geopolitics, but let's leave that for the moment. Mm. I think Austin's introduction, quite right to focus just on China for the moment. But obviously, when we do turn finally to uh, geopolitics, and I'll touch on it myself, um, the possibility of each side being more fearful of the other in the America-China axis, which isn't the whole axis in the world economy, mm. Uh, as invokes what uh, was known in ancient Greece as the Thucydides trap. And that's a very nervous-making prospect. So uh, this is kind of the agenda that I wanted to say. And just starting off, what do I mean by integration? Integration with the rest of the world economy. How far has it gone? Very important question. Uh, Austin already talked about and showed a, a longer time span for uh, China's GDP. And obviously, you go back to before the financial crisis, even as late as 2011, it was looking at 10% growth a year. That is very much tied up with the excess housing capacity and the general uh, overcapacity and fair amount of chaos in what is thought to be a planned economy, wrongly. However, if you look at the recent years, and even if you disbelieve the statistics, we are in for a big drop In 2020 or they are in Uh, and Austin had worse figures I think but although they massage the figures certainly since around 2012 uh, you know the GDP growth has slowed but not enormously when people don't give the numbers uh, they increase misperceptions of China because uh, the slowdown as it's called isn't so great I think more relevant is just where China's got to as a portion of the world economy. And if you look at the World Trade Organization uh, there, you'll see this is on a nominal GDP basis, that China is not chasing, but not wholly behind America in terms of its percentage of GDP. That was 2018. If you take um, purchasing power, parity, which we are rather suspicious of, you'll find those figures largely reversed. So that China formally has a bigger GDP by PPP uh, than America, one of the reasons one can suspect PPP, so we might discuss that. But anyway, I think one can see that it's a very sizable share, certainly against Japan and European powers of the world's output. Uh, if we look at trade now, um, I think the situation there is still more vivid, really, uh, and so I got the exclamation marks, is merchandise trade. And no surprise, really, Britain's useless. China's very good. Uh, and Germany punches uh, above its weight, really, with America being a continental economy, not so uh, strong as it might be in exports. You know, if you take PPE, uh, China's a dominant power, and that's actually buying up other people's PPE to export it again. Uh, which is um, quite an achievement of one sort or another. Uh, If you look at the situation in imports, you can see that US quite a big importer, China quite a big importer, and also Germany. So what we're talking about here is whether we're looking at GDP sizes and output, or world trade in merchandise, a strong intermashing between China and the rest of the world economy and the world economy in China. And it's not so different than you would expect uh, in services exports, America very big, Britain, which is basically Coopers on wheels, also doing well there, better even than Germany in services, China quite weak, Japan even weaker. Um, so uh, that's just to complete the picture there, fairly level pegging on imports, Um, No surprises, uh, really, but it all speaks of the integration. Now, what we're talking about here is that the world does depend quite a lot on China, or did until COVID. Uh, If you take luxury goods purchases, which I'd rather not, you know, it's China that keeps Louis Vuitton afloat. If you take tourist spending generally, um, also an enormous source of sucker uh, to the West, You might say, well, they're all in gangs as tourists, and they spend nothing. Certainly, it slowed even before COVID. But if you look at um, the tourism contribution that Chinese now make to the world, they're spending about three hundred and fifty dollars per head, Uh, and that's you know quite important in Bournemouth and Bognor and places like that. So moving from GDP to track from and trade, we now turn to foreign direct investment. And Japan still remains in terms of flows going out of it. uh, And you're looking at 2018 in the darker lines, and the uh, 2017 in the lighter ones, Can see that China is now a major FDI exporter, so to speak, America's not even in the chart, that's because it took all its foreign capital back uh, after the tax inversion. That um, happened fairly recently, so they had all kinds of tax reasons to withdraw um, their foreign direct investment uh, a bit, but nevertheless, um, leaving that anomaly aside, obviously America is the dominant uh, FDI usually uh, China is you know neck and neck with Japan in that now, when we look at the input of or the inflows we 're talking flows here of foreign direct investment into China and into the United States. You can see it's bigger in the United States as you might uh, expect, but China's about half, uh, takes take coming into it, about half of what America does in terms of foreign direct investment. So it's a very important site for world foreign direct investment. I don't know if any of you um, are uh, drinkers and drinking Diageo, now, but uh, Diageo, not so long ago, spent $9 billion, I think it was, or pounds, picking up a Chinese whiskey supplier. So that's sort of indicative of uh, what's going on there. Perhaps the most interesting thing is that the conflict that we talked about between the US and China, if you look at the composition of foreign direct investment going into China, uh, quite a lot of it if you alt- uh, isolate it by the ultimate investor, not just the stuff that appears to be coming from Hong Kong and Singapore, but uh, actually the ultimate investor is the United States, you'll see that uh, the United States is um, uh, putting quite a lot of money into China. It's the, uh, n- not as much as the UK uh, puts into the United States, but it does amount to about 10% of China's important FDI stock. FDI is also important for R&D. So China, to some degree, depends on American uh, FDI and uh, also, to some degree, on American technology. We'll talk about that. Uh, The Belt and Road Initiative is a potent signal of China's outbound FDI. It's backed by a lot of debt. The West was worried about it. Then uh, China got worried about it, realized that it hadn't even computed how much debt was bound up with uh, all of its overseas initiatives under the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Of course, there's uh, a lot of suspicion around that, but uh, just um, concentrating on one continent for a moment, um, these are the figures that were published in 2017, and you can see it's very strong presence even then, not just in railways, Uh, but in infrastructure generally um, in Africa. And what's happened is that its stock has gone up uh, over that period mentioned there by half at just the moment when America and Britain have been divesting from Africa. So what do we all do back at the office about integration, folks? Well, uh, how many of participants read China daily? I don't read it daily, I don't believe it, but I think one should, uh, and People's Daily, Kate chin and all of that. China's going to be important, for all the reasons I've expressed, to our everyday lives, more important than just commodity exports or goods, it's going to be important for the next 10 years pretty much to everybody in the world economy. And therefore, especially as there's 10 of them reading every one of us, um, if you look at, uh, you know, how closely they're tracking us, incumbent upon us, however we feel about China, to get a bit uh, more knowledgeable about it. What do we also do back at the office? Well, I think we can realise that however much some of us might want to cut off links with China, before we talk about the desirability of that politically and so on and the consequences of it, is it actually possible? Well, I've tried to show in uh especially in trade which isn't a whole ball game nor fdi and in gdp uh is just how integrated all the economies now are with china i think 20 30 years ago uh that was very different i would like austin to talk a bit more about self-reliance and self-sufficiency and we're going to talk about autarky but that's a very important result moving quickly to the other four items if you look at china's internal market One of the reasons to read about it more is that our broad uh, assumptions are often wrong. We imagine it's just exporting steel because dumping is uh, such an emotive issue in the EU and Trump's made an issue of it. If you look at the EIU predictions, this is before COVID, you will see that the main trends are private consumption, that's the top line. Be careful, we're looking at 2020 today. So the chart takes it to 2030. And all of these forecasts are uh, for the birds really since COVID. But I think first into the crisis, first out of the crisis, uh, China is likely to see a continued increase in private consumption. It's about 40% as you can see uh, now, could go still higher despite the setback of the moment. The gross investment in steel mills and so on the green second line from the top going down till 2020 quite quickly, actually. So inefficient was all that in a, uh, investment. The light blue shows another important part of domestic consumption, which isn't personal consumption, but government consumption. Uh, and so really, if you take the first three items, those are all pretty buoyant, uh, except for gross fixed investment, which compensated for by, as you can see, by the rise in personal consumption. What's declining is exports, and that's uh, as a percentage of GDP. And that's a sign of strength. It means that China's building its own internal market. Yes, many people are poor, especially in the countryside and the West, and the regional uh, disparities and town and country, disparities are very important. But if you go to the urban side of uh, Chinese personal consumption, it's quite remarkable The increase in car ownership just between 2013-2018 in the urban areas. And then if you look at the rural areas, there's still urbanisation happening. There's everything to play for. It's the same in robots, another kind of consumption, investment consumption. China's got a lot of robots, but it's got per head a hell of a long way to go. I haven't got the charts with me, but I can get them for you. the as with robots so with rural consumption there's still a lot of scope there for growth. Uh, you can see already in rural areas they've got two and a half phones, mobile phones per, uh, per person I think it is. So what do we conclude from that? What do we think? Um, however much the rural poverty may strike us uh, and we shouldn't underestimate it, the export decline is because they're building their own economy. They've reached the stage where their own devices can provide enough demand, obviously moderated by the current crisis. Lots of slack in consumer expend- spending. Um, there's plenty of investment consumption, B2B, and since Austin mentioned the state-owned enterprises, be a business to government consumption. Now we've already touched on innovation. I'm not gonna speak much about it, my favorite subject, written a lot about it on my website. Uh, I think the thing to realize there is that China is motoring quite nicely in terms of research intensity in a company or a country, usually in a co- company but we can use it here, the percentage of sales or output that uh, is taken by R&D, or the ratio between the two I should say, um, has been rising. It doesn't approach that of the United States. It's certainly above Britain, and uh, it's certainly um, above Southern Europe, probably France. So it's motoring quite nicely. They're not as fast as Korea. The figures don't tell us everything because Japan's had a modest increase but got fairly nowhere the last 30 years. But China is, uh, through its own R&D, Um, moving ahead. And then when you think of the size of China's GDP, it's clear that the scale of R&D that it's doing is way, way bigger than the ratios displayed here, um, compared with, say, Taiwan, UK, uh, and all of that, and indeed Korea. So there's a whole lot of R&D going on there, and and it's becoming a more R&D-intensive economy. Um, What does that mean for us? uh stop all the stuff about imitating they do plagiarize to come to that they got a cleaner ip regime for intellectual property west is more accepting of their law on that what the west is complaining about the trump complains about is that when you do some fdi in china they drive a hard bargain they stick to it and you have to part with your technology not illegally they do it although maybe they do a lot of that as well but that's part of the deal. You, you sign an agreement, you've got to, for your subsidiary, you've got to um, you know, give up your technology, and they're going to get hold of it uh, if you're there uh, anyway. Um, so uh, their own initiative, however, their internal market for R&D is very big. Now, other colleagues can talk a bit more seriously than me about debt. I just wanted to talk about briefly two kinds of debt. Their external debt, which isn't... Uh, a, a, a problem. They're a creditor in lots of places, creditor in Africa, I believe in Latin America, and also um, they have a lot, but not as much as one might think, of American treasury bonds. You can see how well Abe is getting on with uh, Xi Jinping here, you know, and you check out the handshake, uh, it's nothing to write home about, but you can see that uh, the size of their percentage control of US debt, not enormous, but certainly equivalent. Uh, to that of Japan, even though Japan exceeds it. Turning now to internal debt, the infrastructure that uh, Austin talked about builds up a lot of debt. They're doing some great things with high-speed trains and urban expansion and housing and roads and so on, uh, but it has built up a lot of debt. Because they've got their own central bank, they can control things much more easily, like Japan, than many people, but certainly government debt has been going up. It's nothing like Japan's or nothing like that. But it all needs a microscope quite carefully because there's different kinds of debt. Other people can talk about that. Uh, but w- one of the things that the figures don't uh, show is shadow banking. And when I hear Austin talk about Bitcoin experiences, uh, experiments and cryptocurrencies uh, in obscure cities, uh, you don't have to be a cynophobe or, or go on about their repressed gambling instincts to recognize that there's a fair amount of funny business going on with China's debt. Uh, not, they're not on the verge of a crisis, but if trends continue, especially in the wake of COVID, something to watch. So what does it mean back at the office? Just watch it uh, and break it down and distinguish between external and internal conditions. Just to conclude, uh, everybody would like to talk about geopolitics. Um, I think that's fair enough. One thing to remember uh, about international relations, in my judgment, is they're not just about state-to-state conflict. They're also about what happens inside states, the state of morale, the state of the class struggle, the state of legitimacy of the CCP. So if you look at that uh, briefly, These are the strikes, it's been 146, can't give you the size. Uh, China Labour Bulletin will give you all of that. That's just been happening in China. So, you know, the internal resistance to some of the harshest CCP measures should not be underestimated, not overestimated, but we never hear about it. Now looking at the geo side more directly, there are all these disputes. And what does it mean for us? uh that's the economic exclusion zone that different uh china and japan are putting around the senkaku islands which is a piece of dirt in uh the east uh, the the east china sea Um, everybody's claiming them china claims them harder than anybody else uh and in its diplomacy its marine activities and all of that it's pissed a lot of people off recently it's got a lot of power it's had some allies, um, but it's also obviously more aggressive and some charge of it's taking advantage of the COVID crisis to, uh, you know, make waves, so to speak. If you look uh, next at the um, South China Sea, uh, we've all got to improve our geography, folks. I mean, mastering this stuff takes a bit of doing. But there's all these other disputed islands in the South China Sea, where it's pissing off the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, and all of that. Again, for lines of dirt, it's building islands and so on. And then the wider picture, a phrase coined by India, actually, who's a big rival of China, is the string of pearls strategy. I'm not going to go into all of that. But one can see that, um, complete with Indian spellings for Malaysia, uh, the You know, the network of influence through ports and logistics supply chain, where it's central to world supply chains, is enormous. But that ain't the whole story. I think colleagues will know its influence in Italy has grown uh, enormously. And Dominic uh, and Laura can speak about that. But not just Italy. Who the hell cares about Belgrade nowadays? But China is there big time. So it's not just a few funky trains from Yiwu, uh, which Austin is right to mention. Uh, in some ways that's a PR stunt, like this in uh, Serbia. But you know they're big in R&D, in rail in Britain. We're gonna go on to discuss uh, Hinkley Point, Huawei, and these sorts of things. And one of the things it means is that their influence in the EU is already so great that EU disputes are breaking out about just how to handle Chinese disinformation. Colleagues may have seen about this. There was a report from Brussels saying, they're shit, these misinformers from China. Then the EU backtracked on it. It all came out in Politico and then the FT. So I think we can see China inadvertently, or perhaps advertently, exacerbating conflicts between North and South in the EU. James, um, nearly done. done. And East and West in the EU, and the dilemmas that Britain faces between America and China in Huawei uh, also show its capacity, somehow or other, to exacerbate rivalries. On that note, just to conclude, um, we're coming up to an important anniversary, folks, very soon, this month, uh, of a D Day. And already, Tommy Tugendhat has said, uh, and many others, have said that, you know, we cannot appease China. Uh, You remember about appeasing Saddam? It's a pity that Xi Jinping doesn't have a moustache. But this is a very strong current in British thought, appeasement and the need to resist it. Uh, Very strong with Michael Foot and the Labour Party and Dunkirk and all of that. It's vulgar as a historical analogy, of course. What I've tried to show is that uh, even if you wanted to stop appeasement, you wouldn't be able to in a hurry. What Austin said about China's resentment uh, about uh, the opium wars would be compounded by the demand for reparations. And that, for me, would uh, increase the tendencies towards war, uh, not necessarily between the US and China, that I uh, began with. So we need to be aware that there's a difference between the CCP, whose conduct has been disgraceful, and the vast majority of the Chinese population, who really can't be blamed for disinformation campaigns in the EU or elsewhere. To avoid war, we need to ally ourselves with them while maintaining our rigorous critique of the CCP, not just politically, but all the opportunities it's lost Economically, thank you.
1: Thank you very much, James. Again, <laughs> we've got a lot to get through now. Uh, right. So I'm very keen at the start to, uh, to to find out people's questions. Jen says to James, "Could you explain more on your point about imitation of U.S. technology by China? Why would China's increasing internal investments in R and D mitigate its culpability in imposing tech transfer on U.S. companies and infringement of IP?" Penny Lewis says James talked about economic integration. What about political integration? For example, the concerns about the Chinese influence on the WHO. Yes, good question. First of all, it's Fraser.
4: I just wanted to know what what you thought about whether does China see um, itself as possibly able to export its own political and economic system in the same way that um, America does? You know, because my sense and, and correct me if I'm wrong is that it actually you know, when it's making kind of these Belt and Road investments, it's not demanding, you know, a path towards their system, unlike perhaps the United States, or the West, where there's an expectation that um, intervention will lead, uh, you know, to liberal democracy, free markets, etc. Um, yeah, so I, I wondered what, um, what is the likelihood that um, China might see itself um, as a more kind of hegemonic power in the future in that sense?
1: Okay, great question. Thank you very much. Uh, Right, Helen, Helen Siles.
5: Thanks. Um, I have a question about, I think both speakers have explained quite clearly some of the strengths of the Chinese economy. I have a question about how much some of the current trends towards autarky, as as it was mentioned, um, could uh, derail China. I don't think they can, but I'd like to have a bit more discussion about it in terms of some of the stuff that's happening in the states in terms of trying to uh, relocate supply chains so that they're not um, uh, so uh, you know they're trying to diversify uh, supply chains so that um, manufacturers are not so dependent on Chinese inputs, or some of the moves with uh, Japan on reshoring um, foreign direct investment. Um, and even some of the sort of defaulting, which is now being threatened on the Belt and Road project. All of those things to me seem to be undermining um, some of the gains that China has made. And will they just be because of the strength of the Chinese economy, um, just a, you know, a blip for them? Um, or, or will they actually? Could they actually have a, a any more profound impact? Because it looks at the moment as though one of the few areas of growth in the world in the next year or so is going to be China. Um, so will that still happen with with all of those uh, tendencies happening? And just to follow up, obviously with the U.S. election happening, and I know you don't want to get into geopolitics, but you know, China is becoming the main issue in, in you know, one of the major issues in in the kind of pre-election period with both parties seeing that they can get real political gain by whipping China and what kind of impact that has.
1: Brilliant, thank you very much Helen. Um, uh, just uh, on the, the chat, uh, James Pett's asking, um, James, the end of your talk mentioned not conflating the Chinese people with its government. Do you or does anybody have any thoughts on a concerted strategy for popularising the important idea that the inhabitants of a country are a fundamentally distinct entity from its government? The kind of converse view is disturbingly popular and amounts to sectarian extremism. And Noah Keat is asking, um, is there any way of measuring domestic attitudes towards the Chinese government of coronavirus? And if indeed has there been any change? So yes what is going on internally in terms of the legitimacy of the Chinese government. Right, over to Tom Bailey. Tom.
6: Uh, I just wanted to pick up on the point about supply chains and reshoring. Um, it's not so much a question, um, but I'd, I'd welcome definitely more uh, input from James and Austin on this. But I think the idea of Western companies moving supply chains is often quite simplistic. The Lots of the companies in China that provide parts to uh, Western brands, such as Apple, are themselves Chinese, or in the case of um, the the major uh, Foxconn, it's it's Taiwanese. But if you look at some of the companies which are moving their supply chains out of China, they're Chinese companies. So one of the um, you can read about a company called uh, was it? Sorry, I got a name written somewhere. Uh, Lockshare Precision Industry. That's moving a large part of its manufacturing into Vietnam. But this is on its own initiative. It's Chinese companies trying to diversify their supply chains into regional countries, so it's not, I think the idea of just the Western companies saying we don't want to produce in China anymore, we'll move it, it's much more complicated than that. And then this is also kind of has support from the Chinese government, in terms of Belt and Road Initiative, a large part of that is trying to move supply chain, parts of supply chains outside of China, because China doesn't want to be a low end manufacturing uh, economy for the world forever. They want to kind of move up the value chain. And then even the whole moving supply chains thing, China 10 years ago was lots of the kind of end assembly parts of say car supply chains, now it's integrated across the whole of China. The whole kind of supply chain is in China. To move that to countries like Vietnam or any of the surrounding Southeast Asian countries, it, it would be a monumental task and a Vietnam it has its workforce is kind of preferred the size of China's, probably less. It, 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 there, it would be too much of a monumental task anytime soon so I think the kind of focus on supply chains is an interesting question, but I think it's uh, unlikely to kind of damage China's economy anytime soon. And also keep in mind that China is at a level of development where they no longer want to have all the supply chains. So that's my question, sorry, but thanks.
1: (laughs) Thanks very much, um, uh, Tom. I'm just going to take um, one more from the the, the chat and then I'm going to bring Austin and James in for maybe one or two points. Particularly want to pick up, and then I'll come back out to those hands. So uh, John Rowlands asking about China's where does it sit with respect to uh, climate change? Is it just merely paying lip service, or can they leverage their R&D into a potential leadership? And while we're at it, Tammy, what would how would the geopolitical fallout with the WHO affect our inter- international uh, institutions and credibility? All that right. I'm going to get people to start talking now because I'm bored of. The sound of my own voice so i'm going to bring in um uh, uh austin is there anything you'd like to come back on
2: well it's suppose the obvious one for me to come back on first of all is the climate change one which asked towards the end since i mentioned it um in terms of the fact that uh, given the coronavirus problems for the economy uh, and there has been a slump in, in in all sectors albeit it was on a rising curve and it's kind of not taking the same hit that uh, many countries in the west has done but um Obviously, China was a pariah state for the environment in the 1990s, uh, and you know pointed to at every turn as being an example about what not to do with development. So there was a, a number of United Nations <coughs> conferences, excuse me, conferences which were using China to point out uh, about why we in the West, having developed and made a mess of the world, should now use China, who wants to develop to not allow them uh, uh, to make the same mistakes as we have done, <clears throat> which is basically a, an, another kind of way of either doing trade tariffs or holding down the development of China uh, until they satisfactorily um, developed, uh, you know, environmentally sensitive manufacturing techniques. As it happens, China became, within 15 years, became the world leader in solar panels, in photovoltaics, in wind turbines, in lithium batteries, in in hydroelectric, you know, it's like you name it, China does it. As it happens, it also has massive zombie coal manufacturing plants uh, in the north that uh, that they don't really talk about. So there's a, there's a there's um, a situation where China is still having to play off its old uh, industries and its old character and not lay off people because. If you want to maintain social stability, one thing you don't want to do is to increase the unemployment rate uh, immediately and excessively. Therefore, they are funding those zombie industries to maintain miners and steel workers uh, to keep on making material that just lies idle. Uh, while at the same time, it's kind of promoting itself as this kind of eco-savior. I've just written a book on eco-cities in China. There's 265 eco-cities in China, whether you want to believe that or not. And of course, I don't believe it. But you know, they, they're actually kind of quite nice cities. Um, so they are now trying to become, as you would do if you're becoming a global player, to start using the language of global players, which is you know, environmental uh, workness and uh, social solidarity and all that. Um, so actually, uh, China is now, by going back and, uh, and insisting in some ways on um, uh, s- offering stimulus packages to the car industry, on reinforcing coal power manufacture, is going back to the old ways, which is if you want to have rapid development, you have to go back to some of the old uh, tried and tested infrastructures. But and, and that's raising again clouds of, of disappointment. So the West again is pointing to it, at a spe- specifically at the same time that the West is now discovering clear skies and the, the beauty of twittering birds. Uh, you know, in our in our pandemic lockdown. So China's 5G technology, you know, give me some of that. That's what I'd say. Um, The turning point about China's um, outsourcing, I I agree with what Tom's saying. I mean, I was making some very simplistic points in soundbite um, terms, but obviously they are and have been for the last 10 years, reconfiguring the ASEAN networks, trying to create this kind of um, uh, market within, um, whether it's Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Laos. I mean, all these countries are now becoming part of their market and yes, in some respects, a lot of the uh, labor within China is more expensive than you can do if you outsource it to some of those poorer countries, so they're taking those uh, manufacturing capabilities elsewhere. I would also say that there is something to be said about the current lockdown situation where masses of, of migrant workers who have been held back from migrating to the um, to the eastern seaboard um, are now no longer wanted. Lots of those companies have closed down or the wages are now so low that they're not going to be taken on. And some of those people are being encouraged, forced in some respects to remain back in the countryside. So there is a deficit, which is then kind of
7: um,
2: rebalancing some of those wages in those areas. And if you were a local worker in Shenzhen, for example, the wage, wages for some of those low quality jobs were actually dragged down even further by bringing in migrant workers. Now there's a certain rebalancing going on. Uh, anyway,
3: that's, that's enough
1: for now. Brilliant. Thank you very much. James, now if I can bring you in.
3: Well, <laughs> um, I'm only going to talk about technology and innovation here. I just want to say that you know, to recognise that China has its own initiative and its own scale and its own R&D and so on is uh, by no means to exonerate the CCP uh, from ripping people off or ripping Western technology companies off. Uh, you know, the, the two phenomena uh, are simultaneous, and uh, that's why it's important to get the balance right uh, in all of this. Um, however, the gen- I put the accent on their achievements because we're largely unaware of them in the West and in Britain. I mean, uh, supercomputing, artificial intelligence, space. Uh, We don't hear so much about what they're doing in that, but they're very strong. Are they ripping people off in that? Or is the CCP doing that? Yes. Are they able to make their own way? Yes. So these things are worth remembering. Now, if you look at patents, um, their quality of patents isn't great, but the number of them and the number of citations they get is typically Chinese. And they're improving the quality of that. That's why the IP regime um, it's not me saying it's pretty kosher. I talked to uh, Pascal Lamy, who's um, about it, the old trade uh, chief of the EU. Uh, just because he's from the EU doesn't mean he's always wrong. And he told me personally that he thought their IP regime was pretty kosher. Uh, I think if you look at what happened with the outbreak of COVID, um, you know, the Chinese immediately collaborated with the Americans straight away, Uh, in sequencing the genetics and uh, you know a lot of the time um, their collaboration at the scientific level if you take the uh, America, Europe, China projects in fusion um, you know you'll find that they are sometimes very open and they're certainly very sophisticated that's not my judgment it's a judgment of American scientists so it's important to get that right. They've still got a long way to go of course China has a lot of shale oil and gas. It's not doing anything about it. Uh, and that leads finally to this question of, you know, can there R&D um, be uh, a solution to climate change? Jeffrey Immelt, when he was head of General Electric six, seven, eight years ago, uh, said that China was ahead of America in all energy technologies. That's roughly true, except nuclear, where it's got some fairly clapped out Generation three machines. So, although China has caught a big cold uh, in the past over eco matters and still will in the future, because everybody likes to dump on them for population, for Malthusian reasons, not just because of their poor pollution record, which is very poor, as you would expect for somebody growing at their rate, but they've also got the possibility of being a sort of angel in climate change because, uh, you know, they're. All, Way ahead technologically in the energy uh, solutions to that, and probably carbon capture and storage. So let's get the balance right, folks. Uh, it's a bit of both.
2: Can I quickly just make one p- quick point? Yeah, that we don't over egg. Uh, similarly, the, the data, I know we always have to be a bit of suspicious about uh, some data coming out of China, as I'm sure we should about you know, many other countries. But uh, patents, uh, it's that crazy that even I've got one. Um, I made up some nonsense and I uh, got a patent in China, um, and you'll find that every employee in the state sector uh, and in schools have to develop a patent every year. Uh, so they just make something up, draw it on a piece of paper, they get a patent and it's logged. Um, so and it's the same thing with citations, you know, that, that kind of citations. and. Citing with your friends and getting recited. It's become an industry in China because they're very rapidly emerging on the uh, education market, the university market, and that's one way of getting kind of global recognition. It's, and so it becomes a an industry. It's become, you, be, you are trained and told how to do it, and it's very, very effective. So we shouldn't get too carried away with that.
1: Right, okay, brilliant. I've got a nice stack of people who want to speak now. So I'll take Steve Roberts, then Ben Habib, Daniel ben and Penny Lewis, um, so Steve you're up.
4: Um, but despite all the information, there's one thing I'm that seems to be missing to me. I and mean, the big thing for me is what is the relationship between the citizens and the state, both in China and the West, pre and post-Covid. I mean we're all clearly aware, and Austin made this very clear, the state level of involvement in the economy and other factors I think um, Austin made the point that SOEs are approaching 30% still in China. Uh, we're all quite familiar, I presume, of Phil Mullen speaking about the state involvement in the West as well. So I'm just wondering, basically, is how is the state perceived by the citizens in China and in the West? And will that itself have an impact on how we all globally get out of this crisis? I mean, I I just feel that it's really important, and I know it's a very broad question to ask, and perhaps Oscar can reply uh, better than James on this one, no respect to to James, but is it possible that in China, despite the level of authoritarianism, that the Chinese state will come out of this with a more positive attitude from its citizens? Because at the moment it seems in the West that there's a, a building amount of negativity towards the states in the West because it's destroying its own economy whereas in China perhaps it's still perceived as a natural thing that the state has to respond to but, but thanks very much.
1: Okay brilliant thank
8: you very much Steve. Um, ben Habib you are live. Well my, my question really is have James and Austin given any real um, uh, attention to the fact that public opinion and in the West is going to swing dramatically once the stimulus measures put in by governments are abated and the full force of the recession, which I think the vast majority of people in the West consider to have been caused by China. Once that, the weight of that recession comes home to bear, how the public opinion shift in the West is going to be managed, because I can see a huge movement by the people in the West against China and there are lots of weak points in the Chinese economy, their huge indebtedness, um, their reliance on commodities, the way that they have um, tried to take over large swathes of Africa, how they've tried to infiltrate our infrastructure in in the West. I can see lots of vulnerable points where we can actually economically and politically hit them quite hard quite quickly when public opinion in the West eventually shifts, which, which I believe it will. And so my question is, you know, how do you, how do you see that playing out?
1: Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, I'll jump I just take, in, uh, take uh, Daniel, I'm just going to throw in a couple of questions on the chat. Um, Tammy asks, how would you evaluate China's soft power strategies at the moment? Does soft power matter for the CCP leadership?
7: Uh, I just wanted to say something about China and the world economy. Uh, and I think this is a bit, paradoxical, so hopefully I won't be misunderstood. but it seems to me that China's capacity to underpin the world economy is probably lessening rather than uh, becoming greater over time. Because it seems to me that if you look at the world economy over the last 20 years or so, the most underappreciated feature of it is probably the key role that China has played propping everything up. So buying US, U.S. Treasury bonds, I'm not sure about James's figures. As far as I can see, U.S. Treasury bonds, in other words, debt held by the U.S. or issued by the U.S. government, it's a huge, huge market. And China holds about 15% of it, according to the figures that I've got. Uh, China's been producing cheap goods, which Western consumers and other consumers have been enjoying. Uh, China's been a huge market, for example, for Germany, German capital goods. Uh, going to the Chinese market helping China develop so I think the mainstream narrative over the past 20 years has been the the world economy has been pretty healthy, Uh, where there have been problems uh, the Federal Reserve has helped keep propping it up but they've really forgotten the fact that without China if China hadn't developed from a very minor economic player to a very large economic player the, the world economy would have been in hugely greater problems over the past 20 years than it has been. It seems to me what's happening now is that uh, China doesn't have that capacity anymore to keep propping up the whole world economy. So it will become stronger. I think it will will bounce back more more quickly than, say, America or Britain in terms of uh, bouncing back from the effects of the COVID pandemic. It will probably become stronger, almost certainly become stronger relative, say, to the US and Europe than it was before. But at the same time, it can't underpin the whole world economy in the way that it has done for the past 20 years or so. I think that's a really neglected
9: fact.
1: Uh, Great. Thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, Penny Lewis, where are you?
9: Steve Roberts' point I think about quite a lot because it's quite difficult issue to address, I think, about the relationship between citizens and the state and the contact that I have with people in China um, indicates that people um, think both things. They think the state is corrupt and irrational and should be distrusted because it's authoritarian. And at the same time, they think um, capitalism is irrational and that the Chinese state has Um, Being able to act in the interests of the collective rather than the individual in relation to COVID and therefore they score some points And I think they think that about the train systems and the economy as well Um, so um, The closest answer I can get to the question is to say that the Chinese state has to reconstitute itself anew almost every day sort of treading a line between being a state which can guarantee the conditions for the market and um, allowing the market to operate without the dead hand of the state. It's just a a constant negotiation of those things and people sort of change their opinions on a day-to-day basis, I think. But my question was really to Daniel and Phil based on the um, points that I think you made a couple of weeks ago about Japanification and the zombie economy. Um, because when I talk to young middle class people in China, their greatest fear is that China follows Japan in terms of um, economic prospects. And so they have quite a sensitivity to the idea of a, a zombie economy. And I just wonder what you think about, they they believe that there's a real danger that China follows the Japanese um, model. And if anything, if the reports on Beijing or anything to go by, it suggests that personal anxiety and, and a desire to sort of hold back the subjective element, if you like, and a, a real fear of taking risks could potentially influence what happens in China now. So, although China's, um, China's back up and running as a result of the lockdown, a lot of the media coverage is about how slow that um, bounce back is, more at a consumer level than a manufacturing level, but nevertheless, it suggests an attitude
1: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Very useful. Uh, Noah Keat.
9: Hello there. Um, Good evening, everyone. Um, I
10: just wanted to ask quickly um, to what extent uh, the panel members think that liberal democracies have almost replicated um, the big privacy and surveillance breaches of the Chinese government um, with the introduction of these track and trace apps to help deal with um, the coronavirus pandemic. You know, um, the Western governments might say it's for benign purposes, but personally it's i'm very concerned about so to what extent do they think this mirrors um yeah the privacy breach of the chinese government if it mirrors it at all thank you
1: brilliant thank you very much noah um right uh phil
11: um i, I think ben's raised uh ben habib raised some very important questions in terms of the uh, the the big picture of the geopolitics side but i think that's too big a question really for, for us now, and I think we should have another uh, forum on it in, the, in, a, in a few weeks time when we've uh, gone through the, the, the other ones. I think I'd just like to talk on the, some more of the, the economy side or the, and the impact of the, uh, not so much the pandemic, but the impact of the shutdowns on the, on the Chinese economy. And a, a couple of things that really jumped out from the very useful charts, which both James and, uh, and Austin showed, um, firstly, on the, uh, the, the, the direct impact on the quarter one figures, this sort of 6.8%, 7% drop in GDP, which, uh, you know, people presented as being this great shock. But given the scale of the shutdown, uh, it seemed to me it was relatively, relatively modest. Um, and, you know, that, that covered the main January, well, the, the February-March period, when things were really, really locked down. Um, So I was interested to see, get your views as to whether that is um, something which you think is going to roll on and get worse. Because if you look at the sort of utilization figures or the, you know, the amount of manufacturing that's gone back, the amount of, uh, uh, you know, even, you know, the Starbucks cafes going back and so on, even though they're, you know, supposed to be only at sort of 30, 40% capacity, but the opening up seems to have happened more rapidly. Than uh, we can anticipate, unfortunately, in the West and, in, uh, uh, and certainly in this country and European countries. Um, so, you know, it seemed to me that it was a relatively small impact compared to what it could have been given the repressive character and the more sort of authoritarian control character of the shutdown, you know, the way it was perceived in the, in the, in the, in the Western media. I mean, I, I appreciate China's very big place and therefore the. The the uh, the shutdown had a differential impact in in uh, Wuhan area and Hubei and so on compared to the rest of the country. But we did we did get that impression that it was a, a, a China wide response. And that links into my second point uh, or, or query from your slides, which is the relatively cautious um, response from the government so far on an economic level. Uh, you talked, Austin, about you know 600 billion. Uh, dollars whatever in fiscal fiscal subsidy but or fiscal impact fiscal policies but that is relatively small again for the size of china i mean we, we had the figure of yesterday for the united states of you know three trillion so far and counting um uh, and and in fact there's been some criticism i've seen from the, from western economists saying why doesn't china do more to help us by spending a lot more uh and you know we When we talk about how big the state is in China, we see that actually state economic intervention, uh, leave aside the SOEs at the moment, but the amount of state expenditure is relatively low. As I think one of the figures showed, 15% of GDP, as opposed to what we're used to in the West of, you know, 35, 40, up to 50% of GDP. So they've got a bit of slack there, and you know, the level of debt. I think it was one of James's slides. The level of public debt. Uh, you know, government debt is about 50% of GDP, whereas, you know, we're at the 100% mark and going up to 120 as a result of COVID. So there's, there seems to be more room there. And so it's interesting as to why the Chinese government has been so cautious. And either that means that they don't think uh, the impact is going to uh, linger as long as it is going to in the more decrepit Western countries and the more, uh, the more uh, sluggish West. Uh, either they have faith that there will be more of a bounce back Or they're also just a comment on on Penny's question. uh, They may be seeing this as an opportunity to shake out some of the zombies there, because there are quite a few um, uh, low performing businesses. And if the fiscal uh, impact or the fiscal policy, the fiscal stimulus is held back a bit, there could be a bit of shake out, which they could then sort of like keep their powder dry a bit, let a bit of a shake out go in some of those sort of small uber indebted companies go to go to the wall and then they can come in with their bigger uh, uh, bazookas later to then keep the unemployment figures right so anyway, those are the, the two questions if i could say just to, uh, i think an answer to them and i'm not going to give the whole answer but i'd just like to draw out some of the points that people have made it's very easy when we look at the chinese economy to get a bit fixated on the growth figures you know they're six percent five percent whatever but i think some of the points being made are very important so far in Highlighting what has changed not quantitatively but qualitatively over the last sort of 12 years in China, I think it's understated the way in which a home market has developed uh, in a way which didn't exist 20 years ago. The way in which um, uh, China, as Tom said, alluded to, has already gone up the the value chain in a big way. It's not an aspiration; it's there. I mean, you know, I remember working in the telecoms industry. We had Huawei, you know, selling us. Telecoms equipment back in the in the couple of years before the financial crash, they were already competitive with all the rest of the world, and that has only gone from strength to strength. The high-speed trains, the 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 the, uh, the construction techniques, and so on. So there is they've already gone a long way up that, which gives them a relative autonomy, um, which they didn't have 20 years ago. And and linked to that, uh, you know, is the, is the question of the regional division of labour, which as Tom alluded, uh, pointed out is, I think, a sign more of strength and of weakness that China has been able to establish a regional supply chain, which uh, helps to give it a certain autonomy from, uh, on Helen's question, you know, how, how much damage could be caused to China from uh, you know, what the Americans are threatening to do, from what the Europeans may be threatening to do, what the Japanese may be threatening to do. I think China is in a stronger position now, a much, much stronger position, qualitatively, in order to uh, withstand those attacks whether, as Daniel, to conclude, whether Daniel's point is, is saying that they are stronger, but they're not going to be helping out the rest of the world economy. I think that's more of a political question. Um, uh, I, I think 10 years ago, China, what the Chinese government wanted to be seen to be helping people out. I think uh, given the, the level of the war of words at the moment, I think they're much happier to st- stand back at the moment. I think they've got the strength to do it, but I think they're going to take their time to see what's the best way of them extending their influence Rather than just saying we'll stimulate and help out you in the West when you've this,
7: you know, when you created your own problems.
1: Right, brilliant. Thanks, Phil. Um, so, I've got uh, Dominic who's raised his hand, as I'll take him in a moment, and then three people who've asked to speak um, uh, on the on the chat. So I'll take after that. I'll take Joan Hoey, Antal, and Rob from Portugal in that order. So, um, if uh, Dominic, please.
10: So, I just wanted to kind of touch upon um, China's influence on Italy. And of course, uh, we know that China is uh, an extremely strong economic power. I wonder whether its relationship with Italy is also a demonstration of its COVID software. So, the northeast of Italy is very highly integrated with China, particularly in the textiles and leather with a lot of uh, Chinese people um, working here, those economic links were also reinforced by Italy signing the Belt and Road last year. But even that didn't bring a great development of economic relations or Chinese investment. Um, Instead, I think in some ways that was more soft power than it was economic power, because the EU was very unhappy about it. Now, interestingly, the COVID outbreak. Um, I'm not saying that uh, I'm blaming the Chinese for the outbreak in northern Italy, but it is quite highly likely that strong economic links between northeastern Italy and China, uh, particularly Wuhan, uh, might have been the reason that Italy initially uh, developed uh, the virus so uh, virulently. However, what's also interesting is that the reactions from China were to send doctors and nurses and PPE to Italy while the EU was not supporting uh, Italy in that way. So again, a kind of use of um, soft power there. Now, my um, suggestion here is that as the EU flounders in its support, the uh, Italian economy, people might have seen the decision by the German constitutional court yesterday to raise limits on EC support or uh, debt purchases, which could uh, lead to uh, an exaggeration of the debt crisis. I don't see China being able to come in and support economies like Italy uh, in in a very significant economic way. And maybe what we're seeing here is that China is not really able to mop up EU mess in economic terms but instead has a new kind of Covid soft power.
1: Okay thank you very much for that insight that's useful.
12: Thank you, thanks um, uh, the two of you Austin and James for really good presentations, uh, really really interesting thank you. Um, I just thought I could say a few things in response to Phil's questions because um, We have a very big China team, Access China team, you know, on top of our Asia team. So we've got a lot of people, a very big team working on China. We've got two offices in China in Beijing and Shanghai, as well as our Hong Kong and Singapore offices. So uh, we've got quite a good feel for what is um, happening there at the moment. And so I just wanted to make the first point is that from what they're saying, things are normalising very quickly in terms of things going back to normal and you know at least in beijing shanghai bars and restaurants are opening They, you know they put in place all these uh, social distancing rules but they're busy people are going there so confidence seems to be quite high actually uh, they're busy they're crowded people are also traveling now and visiting families and stuff like this our team working there are, are visiting offices firms offices and doing their presentations and having their normal meetings and stuff like that so things seems to have um, Been moving back quite quickly now on Phil's points about q1 and what happened? Minus 6.8% year-on-year real GDP growth that was pretty much bang on in line with our Forecast and the first thing that I think you can obviously you can raise questions maybe about the reliability of the data um, You know that we can't take it for granted But the lockdown was actually shorter there, even though Wuhan wasn't opened up until quite a lot later. The real lockdown of the economy was shorter than what we've seen in Europe, in Italy, in Spain and so on. So the lockdown began on the 23rd of January. At the end of February, 80% of large firms resumed work, 30% of SMEs. By mid-March, 95% of large firms had resumed work and 60% of SMEs. So there was still actually quite a bit of activity still going on, unlike, you know, if you compare some of the major European economies, it's quite different. But interestingly now, what's happened, what we can see already from the high-frequency data and the stuff that we're tracking in uh, April, since the lockdown's been uh, lifted, you look at manufacturing activity, it's fallen back in april compared with march and you know what that highlights is you know this kind of um the other side of the point about china's integration into the world economy that china is now being hit by hugely collapsing external demand um so you can see that in the april manufacturing pmis and also in other some of the other indices in terms of fall in export orders um i mean we expect you know double digit fall in merchandise exports and imports in in, in 2020 uh, but they're now a china is now being hit by the lockdowns you know in the um, in, in in the rest of the world so in terms of the collapse in in, in demand so you know that probably maybe q2 is not going to be as good as everybody expected in terms of the bounce back and uh, the recovery so i mean we're looking to revise i think our quarterly um, uh, forecast. So there are headwinds for China, um, despite all the kind of relative strengths that people have mentioned. And the headwinds are that its integration into, into the global economy also means that it's going to take a hit. Um, it has got, you know, and people have mentioned that actually huge debt piles. Um, however you break it down, it is, you know, that is quite a, a big constraint. So those are just a few points that I thought I'd throw in. Thank you.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Joan. I thought that um, was very, very handy to have in the discussion. Um, Anthony Goodwin.
13: Uh, yeah, no, it's been an excellent uh, presentation from James Aniston, and Austin. Uh, and what Joan was saying then was very interesting to me. I've got a business out there uh, which employs uh, about 250 people on my side of the business and about 150 people on the franchising side. Been doing business there since 1999, first went over in 1980. 19- 1996. So seeing all the changes that, you know, it really is an economic miracle. And and I was I was delighted to see it, you know, they've rewritten the economics history books with command economy kind of approach. However, what has happened, uh, almost tangibly, is a a change in attitude over the last five to eight years, in particularly uh, senior members of the CCP, uh, and I think that was clearly demonstrated by the uh, Chinese ambassador's uh, discussion uh, or presentation last week to Asia House, where um, I felt that his scripted presentation couldn't, could have been written by Xi Jinping. And I could see that it was clearly something that was translated into uh, 150 other languages or however many embassies they've got around the world. And it was a a a very much a command economy, dictatorial, authoritarian, one-party state, this is how it's going to be. And I, um, you know, as as someone who's a a keen Brexiteer, doesn't like to be told what to do, and I certainly don't like to be told what to do in business terms by uh, a one-party state. And it was very thinly veiled, his threats, his economic threats to the UK, the the, the Chinese ambassadors were very thinly veiled in terms of, uh, you know, you can be the biggest or one of the biggest uh, beneficiaries of Chinese uh, FDI into the UK. Or you can be the beneficiary of being a great partner of China's if you do it our way. In other words, you are either with us or you're not with us. Uh, similar to the spat that the, um, the, China, the senior Chinese official had with the Australian um, uh, diplomatic community, or it might have been a political community, uh, where they're, they're basically saying, you know, do it our way, don't question us too much on our figures with COVID-19. And, and the fact the figures I've heard are that actually 47,000 people died in Wuhan alone. And their total isn't even over 4,000 they're declaring. So I would like to throw that over to the the panel and say, do you think, have they they had any feedback to that extent? Um, And do you think this is going to play out over the next few years, where uh, in a case of you're either with us and you'll get our investment and you'll get our corporation, you'll get our business, you'll be able to invest in China, or if you don't, you won't.
14: Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, right. Finally, uh, hello, Rob from Portugal. Hello there. Um, yeah, fine presentations. And actually the last two questions sort of lead into my thought a little bit. Um, a little while ago, just before Christmas, actually a friend of mine, uh, wrote a report on artificial intelligence in China for the British government. And, uh, it was a long report and he came to the conclusion that they are making deeper use of AI, integrating it more into society, using it in ways which perhaps, I don't know, a sort of the, the best friend of state control could only dream of in any other kind of society. And they're able to use AI, big data, all that stuff in ways that just aren't really feasible, at least at the moment, at least before COVID, in Western states. And so it sort of brought me onto a, a kind of qualitative question I mean it does seem he was he he was of the opinion that, that uh, their social organization was you know a, a wonderful thing allowed them to do things that uh, Western societies in terms of reorganization could only dream of um, and it, it it leads it leads me to wonder if they might just be very very well equipped to deal with a Something like the COVID and and its aftermath, particularly because their sort of control economy is able to switch itself off, switch itself on in ways that um, Western economies simply can't. So um, it's, sort of, it's sort of yeah, back to it sort of echoes a little bit uh, the question about um, you know the qualitative nature of their of their of their investment and their investment in tech and their ability to deploy that within their 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 society to do different things and. Um, yeah, frankly, I think there are, there, I'm, I find myself quite worried about, uh, you know, where where this may lead.
1: Okay, right. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, so, I, just before I bring Austin and James back in, just a, p- a couple of quick reminders, because people dash off once the speakers are finished. Just so that if you can give us a donation at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate, big or small, it is very much appreciated. If you want to keep up with these, Uh, events and there's so many of them going on at the moment uh, via Zoom that we're really taking advantage of the possibility of having people from America and and all around the world coming to our events Um, uh, do sign up at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash newsletter right okay Austin your final thoughts please maybe about three minutes or so because we've run over as ever
2: Uh, okay well I I agree with uh, what John said in terms of um, the short-term effect, in some respects, on, on the economy, it, it it started during Spring Festival. So basically, China shuts down for two weeks in Spring Festival anyway, and that's kind of catered for within their economy. So everyone's at home and all the rest of it, and that's when it kicked in. So you even short the length of time that uh, beyond that that the coronavirus hit. The second to that is it happened in Wuhan and in. Uh, uh, province, and that was locked down completely. This is like this, you know, 65 million people. This is like closing the entire borders and locking everybody indoors in Britain. Uh, and so the ability to do that, you know, m- many people, especially within the center of this area, had a two minute allowance on their door. They, you know, people had little things connected to their doors. If you open it for more than two minutes, it gets reported to the authorities and they'll come around and they'll quarantine you. Uh, so you know, this is not—we're not dealing with you know uh, mother of all parliaments here. We're we're dealing with a, uh, you know a society that's able to do that, and then the um, able to 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 lock down means it can minimise the harm. I also think that maybe the statistics and the data on GDP fall and the ability to kind of bounce back may be overplayed because there will be this kind of demand hit uh, on on um, on the supply chain. Um, so anyway i can 't deal with all these questions, but i was just going to say very slippant things um, Steve uh, 's point about citizens and uh, and how it 's kind of being read by state citizens and how they 're playing off one another it 's interesting in as much as if you 're in Wuhan, uh, you feel as if you were thrown to the dogs, and so you have an absolute virulent hostility to the center as far as um, I can tell from colleagues uh, who 've uh, been there. Um, where at the same time there's a growing acceptance of Xi Jinping, especially in relation to Trump's trade tariff talk, uh, as heroic. You know, this is the man who beat coronavirus uh, first and fastest, and is now we're on the road to recovery. So there's an element of a, a national resurgence uh, going on, and some people have pointed to uh, some liberals in China have pointed to the uncomfortable nature of, um, of, of the uh, resurgence of nationalist thought. Um, and uh, ex- expression. So there was, an, there was an article written just recently, which was making a connection with the uh, Boxer Rebellion uh, um, Back a, well, 120 years ago uh, where he kind of made the point that um, The Boxer Rebellion's uh, Motto was prop up. This doesn't really work, but prop up the Qing Qing Empire, Prop up the Qing obliterate the foreigner uh, and that was their message and uh, and it's overstated in as much as but there is an underground kind of social network movement which is actually becoming quite hostile to foreigners and he was pointing to the anti-Japanese protests in 2011 uh, as an example about how sometimes this can be manipulated by the state and get out of hand so there's i mean there are tensions there's real tensions uh, under the under the surface and i suppose the um uh, i think the strengthening the center all these issues of um pragmatic policy initiatives by the state, and, and going with the flow in some respects are quite, um, are quite possible. Also, we have to recognize that everybody knows within China that since 2014-15, Xi Jinping has not become the, the figure, the father figure that we all assumed he was going to become, but has become quite an authoritarian, centralist managerial authority. Uh, so clamping down on power. So the, the idea of China allowing creativity to flourish has to be kind of kept in check because obviously once you have a creative autonomous thinking society that can become critical of the state so you can't allow people to become too autonomous so you allow it to flourish you rein it back in so it's, it's like that And the very final point uh, uh, i can see you looking at me that way um is hong kong which uh we haven't talked about but obviously this is having a major implications on what's going on in hong kong the, the um uh, many many dissidents are now being arrested 7,000 people have been arrested within Hong Kong. Hong Kong, uh, uh, in Shanghai, um, American journalists were um, kicked out of the country. And in Hong Kong, the same American paper was also kicked out of the country. This is an extension of Chinese authority into Hong Kong, which is, hasn't been seen for a long time. And at, coming at the end, of nine months, one year of protests against Chinese authoritarianism, it's remarkable that they can get away with it. So they're laying down some ground rules that this is gonna become a little bit more harsh authoritarian, central state authority imposed upon Hong Kong. So watch this space.
3: Well, uh, Helen uh, asked the very important question, um, you know, can't the West reshore and all of this um, from uh, China? And uh, I think that's partly answered by Tom Bailey. But generally, reshoring hasn't been much more of a rhetorical phenomenon for the West and America until this point. They're going to try harder, no doubt. Um, But if anybody is more capable of autarky than others, it seems to me, and we'd have to look at the numbers, but it seems to me that China... Developing its internal market, as it is, uh, and being able to have recourse to repression as much as it has done. Um, I think it's better place to handle those protectionist trends uh, in some ways. Although I entirely take Joan's point about the collapse in demand at the moment. I think that what Phil pointed to, and I think the numbers, Phil, if I'm not mistaken, is that China's debt-financed debt, recover- debt financed recovery from COVID programme about three or four percent of GDP and that's low by international standards uh so you know I think you're right there Phil and you know other people are doing 10 11 or whatever it is and that reflects you know uh how things have changed in terms of how things have changed I think Daniel is right that the underpinning of the past has gone you know we're not buying Chinese trainers you know to 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 save ourselves and China the way but that's not the issue now. What we're now buying is more than masks and so on is, you know, field hospitals and maybe ventilators and things like that. And therefore uh, I think that the, the nature, the quality of the underpinning may change, but I think still China will be important. Uh, not in the same old role, maybe underpinning is now no longer the term to use, but um, you know, we are more dependent on it at a higher level of the value chain uh, than before. Just going back to the debt thing uh, and Phil's question, um, they were being cautious about municipal debt before the crisis, they were paring that back because they're aware that the local economies in China, municipal authorities always overspending. So the Chinese or central authorities were saying, no, 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 there's always a balance in these things. But I think that precedent them in a good position not to go overboard uh on debt today um now in relation to uh you know soft power and everything i think you can distinguish between soft power and kind of american cold war political hegemony they have got better at soft power who reflects that um but i think Xi Jinping had a moment at the Davos conference a year or two back where everybody was loving him to bits, if you remember, because he wasn't Trump. I think they've not capitalized on that and probably actually taken a hit uh, on soft power because of all the trouble about Confucian universities and all the rest of it. So uh, they are a long way from American political hegemony. Nobody wants that from China uh, I don't. So they're not going to impose CCP kind of style rule in Africa. I think it's there already to a lot of their clients there. Um, but their and their soft power position has been uh, qualified. Although post COVID, as uh, Dominic was saying, um, in medicine in particular, they seem to be uh, going places. Staying on the economic. There's so much to talk about politically. And Ben Habib. Uh, a, a rather incendiary then Habib, I think, uh, has gone. But um, just on Penny's important point, um, I love remaking the state every day. Uh, I can't see it doing ja- Japanification. I think the Japanification phenomenon in Japan was to do with the end of the Cold War, the reliance of the LDP upon it, it being taken by surprise, and a lot of other things. And those conditions are very different uh, from China now, you know, Japan's a very mature economy, in some ways, and demography reflects that China's getting older, in both economics and demography, but I don't really, uh, they've already got zombies, we, we touched on that, um, and they are risk averse, but a whole lot depends, ladies and gentlemen, how the West responds to China, and also, you know, our attention to the internal dynamics within the CCP, which I think Austin is very right to talk about. The, 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 the hot warriors uh, are up back on the block big time. They are issuing our thre- uh, more threats. And that is going to uh, piss a lot of people off in the West. Whether everybody is going to buy what Ben said, uh, you know, this recession has been caused by China. I think liberal opinion in Britain is divided because they're very anti-Trump. So whether uh, uh, whether everybody's going to accept that or the sort of Farage, you know, uh, Ian Duncan Smith, Tom Tuggenhat thing, I'm not so certain. China's got still some friends, and for the long term, a lot of people are maybe not going to do the old style China bashing, even though if you defend it in any way, China not the CCP, uh, and if you point out Western hypocrisy that we in the West steal technology, spy do misinformation and everything, you're immediately accused, especially in the FT comment, of being a China shill. That is a problem for us, and we have to clarify the difference between the CCP and the population.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Change James. James, so if I can unmute you all, can we just uh, give our speakers a round of applause?
0: Thank you to Rob, Austin and James for that Economy Forum. If you'd like to stay in touch with the Academy of Ideas, head to our website at academyofideas.org.uk and sign up to our newsletter. And if you particularly enjoyed that recording or any of our forums and salons that are now online, perhaps you might think about giving us a donation. At academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate, you can give anything you're able and it helps us keep going through these strange times. Thanks, and we'll see you again soon.